we saw that when he came down from that mountain, he was confronted by someone who wasn't free. A father and a son, the son possessed by a demon. And we saw all of the, the truths of that passage, what that represents, and how the Lord Jesus Christ not only casts out the demon from that boy, but he casts us, he casts out sin and the influence of Satan and all these things from the Christian. And though that boy was actually possessed, we saw that we're all by nature in bondage anyway. Christ says that actually in the passage that we read. You see the beauty of the unity of Scripture. In John 8 we read that. Christ said, if you're still living in sin, you are a slave. And Israel is not free. And the Pharisees say, we've never been in bondage. Which wasn't true. We were in Egypt and Babylon. But they were so proud. We've never, we're a free people. We're God's people. We're free. And Christ says, you are not free. For everyone who has sinned is not free. You need to be delivered from it. Jesus delivered that boy and his father he delivered from the bondage of unbelief. And they, remember, Jesus is wanting to be alone. He, he's being rejected publicly and he's not going around preaching like he did. They go down south again from this mountain after he receives the great encouragement of the transfiguration. They go south again towards Galilee, which they know very well. And they walk about 35 or 40 miles back to the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, where Bethsaida, Nazareth, and Capernaum were. And they go to Capernaum. And on the way, the disciples argue about who among them would be the greatest. And we're going to see that next week, really. But they argue about it, away from Christ. And we're told in Mark that when they arrive in Capernaum and they go into this house, that Christ has to ask them what they were arguing about. And they were afraid to tell them, but they did tell them. And he gives them a wonderful lesson in that context. But they're arguing on the way back. And you also see the blindness of the disciples. Christ has just told them again that he will die. The three of them have just seen a great testimony on the mountain that he will die and give himself as a Passover sacrifice for the sins of his people. And he comes down in verse 22 and 23 and tells them again, verse 22, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. He tells them again, that's exactly what he told them before, eight days before they went up the mountain. He tells them clearly again, they can't accept it. The, the, there is a filter on their mind, and that's awful when that happens to us. It just filters out everything that we do not want to hear. And for them, they focus on the, the third day he will be raised up. They like that because that is Messiah theology. Uh, the Messiah will be raised up. He will, he will be filled with life and he will rule and he will oust the Romans, and we will rule with him in an everlasting kingdom. He will be raised up. He will be exalted. But they blank out the part about the death. And they begin to argue about, well, which one of us will be raised up high with him? Which one of us will be next to him on the right hand and on the left hand? It's just awful as we observe this happening, and we observe it in ourselves, that we can't look at these disciples and say, it's only them who do that. This is human nature. And we find that all the time, 
in our own hearts and in the hearts of these apostles who love the Lord. We'll see next week exactly how Christ deals with that problem. They come after arguing to Capernaum and they go to Peter's house, who owned a business in Capernaum, a fishing business, and Christ always stayed in his house. We know that he healed Peter's mother-in-law in that house when she almost died at the beginning of his ministry. And we know that Peter is married. It will be a good uh, Bible study for you to find out where in the New Testament it tells us that Peter is married. But he is married. His wife is there and his mother-in-law. He perhaps has children. We don't know. He may have young children. And we'll see next week how Christ uses one of the young children as an illustration for the disciples. But Christ goes to the, the family home. But something interesting happens when he goes inside the house. He's not there that long. And there's a knock at the door. And it is a couple of men who are called those who collect the drachma. Those who collect the two drachma. Verse 24. These are men, not Roman tax collectors, or the kind of tax collectors that um, we usually hear of. And they're, they're seen as these kind of shadowy characters and sinful characters in the New Testament. But these men are collecting the... The, the two drachma tax to pay for the temple. And that was commanded in the Old Testament. Moses received a command from God that a half shekel would be paid by every family in Israel to pay for the upkeep of the tabernacle and then the temple. Just like the taxes we have now. So every year these men would go around all of Israel and collect this tax and it would all be put into one location in Jerusalem, and it was used to pay for priests, pay for the temple upkeep, and to pay for, sacri- uh, to pay, sorry, for sacrifices. Now, these aren't the sacrifices that you offer yourself. You had to pay for them yourself. You went to Jerusalem and paid for a lamb to be offered for you at Passover. But you'll know that every day in the temple, animals were slain, especially two lambs, one in the morning and one in the evening. A morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. And these had to be paid for. And it came out of this tax. So they're well within their rights to go out and get this tax. Interesting things happen with this tax. Um, the, the Jews had to pay it once a year, usually at Passover, for anyone who lived near Jerusalem. But if you lived very far away, you had the option of bringing it later at the Feast of Tabernacles or another feast. And you had to pay it in the year. But um, many people didn't pay it every year. And there was even a collection box in the temple for those who hadn't paid it the previous year. So when you went to Passover again, you would have to pay for two years. And Jesus mentions these collection boxes at the end of Matthew's Gospel when he's sitting in the temple and he's just condemned the temple and said it's going to be destroyed. He see, and his disciples don't understand, he sees a widow put her last couple of pennies in one of the collection boxes, and he marvels at this. And these collection boxes were, were built out of wood, and I think overlaid with gold, and they were in the shape of a large trumpet. And there were 13 of them in the court of the temple, and each box was for a different collection. One was for the priests, one was for your temple tax. One was a general tithe or offering that you wanted to give. And there were all these different boxes. And Jesus uh, refers to the fact that 
the Pharisees used to go in with their collection and throw in their coins one by one in front of everyone. They, they would, they, instead of just putting it all in at once, they would throw in a coin at a time and stand there in front of everyone showing how much they gave. But this widow did it secretly, and Jesus marvels at this. That's the situation with uh, this tax. And then um, they come to us, well, does Jesus pay this tax? Interesting question. And if he's not willing to pay it, because he said publicly that there are things wrong with the temple, if he's not willing to pay it, what will happen? And Peter's aware of this. Peter knows that if Jesus says, I'm not paying that, this is going to create a problem. And he's just told them that he's going to be killed. And Peter is concerned about uh, that. Before we see how Jesus deals with the question, let me just say this, that um, it's right and proper that there are offerings like this in the church. It's right that God commanded it to Moses to pay for the tabernacle. And it's right that the Jews continued that practice to pay for their temple. If you're in a voluntary organization, um, it's not a company or a business that makes money. And if whether it's government or whether it's the church or another organization, it can only exist if the people who are in it give. It's the same with the government. We may hate paying our taxes to the government, but it's biblical that there is a government and it can't pay for itself. The people must put something in if they want to be governed properly and if they want to live in peace and security. It's right that they give something. Now, obviously, we know in a sinful world that is abused all of the time, but I'm sure we all understand that it's right, even more so for the church. It's a clear principle in Scripture that we have to give to the church. It's in the Old Testament, and the principle of our giving, the, the tenth, as it's so called, is a principle that comes from the Old Testament, that um, when Abraham went to Melchizedek, he gave him a tenth of all that he had. When Jacob went to Bethel, and he lay down to sleep, and God appeared to him, he said to God that if you come back into my life, and I serve you all the days of my life, I will give you a tenth of all that I have. And that continues throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament at the end, in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, condemns God's people because they're not giving as they ought to give. And, and we might think that that's a very crass, unclean thing to think about um, whether God will bless us or not based on our giving. But God says clearly in Malachi that the windows of heaven have been shut up at the end of the Old Testament because they're robbing him. That's a, it's an awful thing. And he says, give freely and give me what you want me and I will open the windows. And there will be so much blessing that you will not be able to contain it. Spiritual blessing, not financial blessing. Spiritual blessing. So I say all that so that we all understand that this it's right and proper that we give to the Lord, for none of it is ours. God owns, as we sung, all the cattle on the thousand hills. The gold and silver are mine, says the Lord, and he built the world and created it from nothing. Everything in this earth belongs to God, and it belongs to the Lord. All the profit we make, everything we build, everything we work on, we're all borrowing it from God. If we build something, we borrow the wood from God. He created it. And so on. You understand the principle. So just think of yourself like that. That you are a steward 
of these things, rather than an owner. Ownership is correct. There is biblical ownership that we must respect. If you own something, you own it. But biblically, you, you own it in the sense that God's giving you it, and you are leasing it from God. No one else owns it, but you are leasing everything you have from God. And it is His, that you should give it spiritually all back to Him and use it in His service. Not self-righteously, not legalistically, not proudly, and to not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, as our Lord commands us. Don't tell anyone what you're giving. Sometimes that's not possible. You have to let people know sometimes. But you know the principle. Don't even let your right hand tell your left hand what you're doing with these things. Because that can be very dangerous for us in our spiritual condition. We're not good with these things. We become proud very quickly. We're to give, not self-righteously, not proudly, but joyfully to the Lord who bought us and saved us and died for us. Yes, Paul even says, don't just give your money, but present yourself as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Burned up. Burned up on the fire on the altar as a burnt offering to the Lord. That your your body and your mind and soul are to be laid on the altar and given fully to Christ. Not part of you. Not part of your time. Not part your whole life is to be designed around Christ. And it's to be filled with a desire to serve Christ. So I'm sure that I don't need to labor that point. I know that we all understand that. And before I leave it, let me just say, I'm not saying this because there's a problem in this congregation. I'm saying it because this is what's come up in our study of Christ. This is what Christ is teaching here. That there is no indirect point I'm making about our congregation at all. That's not my interest here. My interest is that we all love Christ and understand what he expects of us, not what the church in Methil right now expects of us. But let's just serve Christ and give ourselves freely to Christ unquestioningly, and the windows of heaven will be opened. So it is right to tithe and to give in these ways to the Lord's cause, because we owe it to the one who first gave it to us. Now they come to collect this tax, and I think that Christ hasn't paid it, and they know that. They would have a register just like we do, and um, Christ didn't attend the previous Passover. That, that's remarkable. He wasn't there. He would, that's not my expectation, I don't know about you, but I would expect Christ to be all three Passovers during his ministry. He didn't go to the last one. He had his own Passover, John 6, when he fed 10,000 with loaves and fishes, and then preached on himself as the bread of life. That, that was, in a sense, a new Passover. He didn't go to Jerusalem because they're trying to kill him. They're trying to arrest him. The opposition is so great, he pulls back, he withdraws. There's nothing wrong with that. We're allowed to do that. If, if there's danger and promotion and the situation is confusing and it's unpredictable what may happen. There's nothing wrong with pulling back of it. Jesus doesn't just go down to Jerusalem. He remains with the disciples. He doesn't go down, so we know he hasn't dated that year. And they know. And although he's trying to be discreet about his movements, and Mark tells us he went to Capernaum not wanting anyone to know. He told his disciples, don't tell anyone we're here. 
people find out that he's there. People spread it. People say he's in Peter's house. He was the most famous man in Israel at the time. You have to understand that. It would be like the president visit. If you tried to do it secretly, it wouldn't last long. People just spread the word. And these men find out. And they've been watching. They've noticed. He hasn't paid this. Let's go to Peter's house. And they don't ask Peter, do you pay the tax? It's they want to know, does Christ pay us? We've heard him denouncing the temple. People say he hates Moses. People say he wants to ruin our temple and get rid of our temple and replace it with himself. Will he pay? Because if he doesn't pay, the Sanhedrin will have something to say about that in Jerusalem. The wonderful thing is that um, Christ knows that this is happening, even though it happens at the front door. It says that um, when Peter said yes, verse 5, when he had come into the house, sorry, verse 25, when he had come into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? Now that phrase there, Jesus spoke to him first, that word is literally prophesied. In my, in my uh, New King James translation, it says Jesus anticipated him. In, in, in the original language, it says he prophetically understood what was happening. So although it's happening at the front door, when Peter comes in, uh, Jesus doesn't even allow him to speak. Jesus knows what is happening outside. The Lord actually reveals it to Christ. It's a, a wonderful thing. It shows us the divinity of Christ, that even in his ministry, there were moments where God gave him prophetic clarity, and he knew what was going on in people's hearts and minds. He does that here, and the big question is, what's he going to do? Peter's already said yes. Peter doesn't know what's going to happen. Peter thinks, I think he's paid it before. We haven't paid it this year. I don't know how the Lord is going to respond to this. But if I say no, we're going to be in trouble here. We're going to be in danger here. He says yes, but he's not sure. He goes straight in to speak to Christ about it. Christ doesn't let him speak, and Christ is about to teach him a wonderful lesson. And this is the lesson that he teaches him. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from their strangers? You know the, the little parable that the Lord tells there. He's basically saying, who does Caesar tax? Does Caesar tax all the citizens of his kingdom or does he tax his own family? That's basically the question. And obviously he doesn't tax his own family. It didn't work like that in the ancient world. You didn't expect your president to pay taxes. I mean, Caesar's not paying taxes, and neither is his family, because they are sovereign. They are placed over these people, and they shouldn't have to pay for the upkeep of their own palace and all these things. It's, it's their people and their subjects that must pay for that and support their Caesar or their king. And Jesus knows that, and he says, well, the kings of the earth don't tax their own sons. They tax strangers, don't they? And Peter said, yes, it's strangers that they tax. And Jesus says to him, then the sons are free. They're exempt from this, but the sons are free. It's clear in the Greek. 
he's firstly referring to himself. That's what the parable is designed to tell us. The Lord is trying to show us here that although it's right to pay these things, and Jesus has probably paid it before, the truth is he shouldn't really be paying it. The truth is um, he's not really obligated to pay it. And, and the, the reason behind that that we have to ask is, well, why? It's because of who he is. Why should he pay the two drachma? Two coins that each male had to pay. Why shouldn't Jesus pay it? Because he's the son of Caesar. He is the son of the king. In fact, he is the king himself. He's in the royal family. He owns the palace, and in this context, he owns the temple. So why should he pay a tax for it to be kept? He should be on the throne in the temple, and people bring the taxes to him. He shouldn't pay it. Obviously, the Jews have not come anywhere near accepting that he is the Son of God, or God's King at this point. But Jesus is teaching these disciples and showing us. He's opening a window into the glory of who he is at this point. And I, I just want you to carry that with you. Um, this isn't a short passage about whether we should pay taxes or not. When Jesus says, the sons are free, that's a large biblical statement. That, that has things from the Old Testament in it, has things from John's Gospel in it, has things from Paul's letters in it. The, the freedom that he has and the freedom that he gives to us are bound up um, in this passage. He's saying, we're not bound. We're not even bound citizens, really. We're free men. We're related to the king, and we can go wherever we want in the kingdom, and we have the freedom of the realm, the freedom of the king. And that's first true of Christ himself, God's own son. Christ is there self-consciously as the eternal God himself. And he can say of this temple like no one else, my father's house. You have made my father's house a den of thieves. My father's house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus looks at the temple and says, this is where my father is. This is my house. It's not a neighbor's house. It doesn't, it doesn't belong to another sovereign. Everyone else was there as a creature. Having to atone for their sin to get to God. Jesus doesn't. He walks in the front door and he sits down and he's very at home in this house. It, it communicates his glory and beauty. All the gold and everything in the temple. All the riches in the temple. The bread in the temple. The sacrifices in the temple. They're all about him. This is his palace. And it's his father's palace. The temple is mine. So what do you think, Simon? Should I pay this tax? Jesus can even say that as God dwelt in the temple, in the Old Testament, he filled the temple with his glory. Jesus can say, well, that was me. It's my glory. We can make a very clear argument from Scripture that the Shekhanah glory that filled the temple was the glory of the Son. The glory of the Son that whenever God reveals himself, he reveals himself through his spokesperson, the Son. It's the second person of the Trinity that is the light of God and that reveals God and speaks from God. So when you see that glory filling Solomon's temple, that is the Son of God. He is God incarnate. He is God dwelling in the tabernacle. He is God in a physical temple, his body. 
So they think Jesus is a sinner and a Samaritan and is demon possessed, and they're about to excommunicate Jesus. But the truth is, he's the one that actually dwells in the temple. Jesus has every right to say, the sun is free. The earth is the Lord's and all of its rules, for he founded it upon the waters. Christ can say, this temple is mine, this ground is mine, the trees are mine, the rivers are mine, the animals are mine. Every man and woman is mine, because I created them from nothing. I spoke, and they came into being. So why should I pay a tax for this temple? It's the same, before we just leave this, it's the same for the church, friends. And it's not just the Old Testament temple that is Christ. That is very emphatically true of the visible church of Jesus Christ on the earth and the invisible church above and among us. This kingdom, this church, is the church of Jesus Christ. He owns it. It doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to our congregation. It doesn't belong to families. It doesn't belong to married couples. It doesn't belong to ministers or presbyteries. We can fall into that. This belongs to the presbytery. This belongs to the RPCNA. This belongs to the people who are in the church. No, it does not. Nothing here belongs to us at all. No matter what our role is in the church, this church does not belong to us. It is owned by Jesus Christ himself. His word alone governs it. He legislates for it. He guides it. Now, yes, he's placed officers to help in that, to help guide it. And that that's just a reality we have to deal with. There have to be pastors and elders that make these decisions based on the word of God. But it is Christ and his law that guides this church. So we can't come with our own laws and these things and come and demand things from the church. It must be according to the Holy Scriptures. That if Christ says in the Holy Scriptures and sets an example in the Holy Scriptures and commands in the Holy Scriptures... That is what we do, and that, that's it. We waste a lot of time discussing whether or not we should do what Christ tells us to do. But the, we save a lot of time if we just do it. As the, the white, white church, look how many denominations there are. And they, they say, this is what God says, this is what God says. There are a lot of times that uh, these discussions arise for other reasons, and it's not from a true, desi- a true desire just to do what the Scripture Says. So just remember that um, when Christ says the Son is free, the Son is exempt to pay this tax, it's because the temple is mine, the earth is mine, the church is mine. That's what the Son of God says. All that we do in this place should be done for Christ with a strong self-consciousness in us that it is his. Don't, we can't forget that or we'll go wrong. We'll start to come in here and we'll clean and we'll do things and we'll provide things and we'll say, I am doing this and I, I, I have done this and we'll have this wrong self-ownership over it. None of this is ours. Come on. None of it. We are here as unprofitable servants 
who have been leased a palace, and we do it all for him. So we are to give, and Christ says here that he is not obligated necessarily to give, because it's all his anyway, because he is God. That's also true, thirdly, for you and me. He doesn't just say one son is free, but the sons are free. And he opens a door here that connects to John chapter 8 and other places in the New Testament where he's trying to show Peter, Peter, you're worried about thrones, you're worried about when the kingdom's going to come, you have no idea what I'm about to purchase for you in my name and in my blood. I'm about to purchase for you an adoption. You don't need a throne next to me to be my, my general or my lieutenant next to me. I'm about to purchase a place for you in the eternal family. You are going to partake of my sonship. You are going to have an official adoption. You are not going to be a servant in the kingdom. You are going to be a son. You are going to be part of my family. And the sons are free, Peter. And yourself and Andrew and Nathaniel and James and John need to stop being obsessed with this earthly manifestation of the kingdom and realize what's behind it. You men are about to become sons. Judas is about to destroy his soul because he doesn't understand he's about to become a son. And Judas wants the money. Wants, he sees that Christ isn't going to make any money. And he betrays Christ and sells Christ because Judas is so focused on this. And Christ is saying, the sons are free. Do you not want that instead of money on a throne? The sons are free. And what is that freedom? Christ has it himself to do as he pleases, and to go where he wants, and he owns all things. All things. He is a free man. But these disciples and us are given a freedom in Christ. If the Son sets you free, you are free, not just free, but free indeed. Christ makes a, a kind of ultra freedom, an intense freedom. He says to them, a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son does, he says, says to the Jews in John 8. A son abides in the house, and he's telling us here of the freedom that comes from his kingdom that we are adopted into the family, freed from sin, freed from chains, freed from bondage and wrong desires, freed from guilt, freed from disease and death, yet it, it grabs onto us for a moment that free eternally from all these things, and ultimately free in the new heavens and the new earth. What a freedom! To be free from sin and from death and from guilt and from the chains of this fallen world. Christ doesn't keep the freedom to himself. He, he gives it to others. And this is a window into that free kingdom that Christ so often speaks of. And Paul especially speaks of it. This word for freedom here that you're reading exempt. Paul uses it all the time in his letter. In his letters. He says here... Don't be yoked again with bondage, but you are now of the liberty of Christ. Don't be chained again by these things. He said in Romans, 
that we will, the creation will be delivered from sin and from bondage, and it will be born into the glorious liberty, freedom of the children of God. That new heavens and new earth is a kingdom of true freedom, the only freedom that has existed since the Garden of Eden. The Jews said, we've never been in bondage. We are free, but they're not. We say in our countries in the Western world, we are free. That's, that was the big doctrine post-2001 in the UK and in America. The doctrine of spreading freedom around the earth. The, doc- the doctrine of democratic freedom that has become such a symbol and such a powerful and potent uh, symbol, even in American politics, that we do this for freedom. The Constitution is based on freedom and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, but none of it is ultimately safe and none of it is ultimate freedom. This freedom appears as freedom, but it's filled with categories of bondage and death and disease and pain and families breaking apart and corruption in Washington and all all these things, you fill the list yourself. Then we are not free. But Christ says here, do you not understand that if the Son sets you free, O Jews, that you will be free indeed. You will be out of the bondage of Egypt and of sin and all of these things. So he says, I am free. Peter, what do you think? It's a good teaching mechanism to ask him a question, not to say you are free. But say to Peter, do you think you're free? What do you think? Should the sons pay? Should the strangers pay? And it's a rhetorical question. But the answer is no, of course the sons shouldn't pay because they are free. Just as Paul speaks about and the others speak about this glorious freedom that we're promised in the Bible, even in the Old Testament, the great freedom of that kingdom of them. The Jubilee festival came every 50 years. A picture of heaven, a picture of the new heavens and earth. Every 50 years the debts would be cancelled, the slaves would be set free, and the land would be given a Sabbath rest. What a beautiful picture of the new heavens and earth. Everyone sinless. Everyone free. Everyone having all the resources they need. The presence of God and the land enjoying peace and Sabbath. That's what you and I need. We're restless. We're in bondage to our fears and our tears and our sins and our gripes and everything distorted in us. And we long for that peace of the Jubilee. And in John 8, and I think in, in this passage, Christ touches upon that very freedom that he promises to us. So we are to give to the kingdom of what God has given to us. Christ is not obligated to give it because he is free. And the sons, Peter, James and John and the others, they are also themselves free. Now what happens? This is our final point as we close this. What what actually happens? Well, Jesus says, and in case we offend them, I want you to do something. Now that isn't Jesus saying don't offend anyone. That isn't Jesus saying never take an action which you know will cause offence. He's not saying that at all. This for him is the context of the fact that they long to arrest him and execute him and he is stalling that from happening. His hour has not yet come. 
and he's not going to recklessly um, rush that process in. That, that is why he says, in case we offend them, because, like I said at the beginning, if he doesn't pay this, the first thing we'll do is report him. You remember in Nazi Germany, you don't expect the Jews to, to, to openly tell everyone where, where they are and do everything that the Nazis want them to do. If a Jew can get away, get away, but you can hide, hide. And that Jesus is reckless with his life. Thou shalt not murder. Jesus is not reckless with his life. And he says, there's no point causing a problem over this. We don't really have to pay it. Ultimately and eternally, we definitely don't have to pay it because of who we are. But let's pay it. But we're not going to pay it out of our own pocket because we're not obligated to pay it. Because of the gospel I'm bringing in. And he tells Peter, go down to the sea. Throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up first. And when you've opened its mouth, you will find, does it say in this translation, a shekel? Yeah, a shekel. And take that and give it to them for you and me. He's not doing this because they don't have the money. They definitely do have money. He's doing it to show us that he's willing to pay for it, but he's going to protect the truth that... They shouldn't have to labour for this. That they're not, he's not obligated to pay this. And he'll find another way of paying it. And what a way it is, friends. How does he pay? He tells Peter to do this. And I'm sure Peter's very confused and excited, as he always is with the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't expect this. Peter's a fisherman. And Christ is telling him, go down, throw in the line, and a fish will come. And when you pull up the fish, the money will be in the fish. I'm sure Peter can't believe that he's being asked to do this. There's part of him that thinks it probably will happen because he knows the Lord, but it's just a situation where his faith is tested. And you can imagine him walking down to the, the lake, as he did so many times, and thinking to himself, I can't believe I'm doing this. Is this going to happen? Goes down to the shore, or up here, and he casts in the line, and he waits. Remarkably, the line pulls, and that's the moment he knows again, and he learns again the wondrous nature of this person who he's come to love, the same person you and I have come to love. And he pulls up the fish, and he just he can't believe it. And what he pulls up is what's translated here a shekel or a Greek stater coin, which is four drachmas. The temple tax is two drachmas, and he pulls up here four drachmas, which pays for Christ and pays for him for a year for this temple tax. What a wonderful thing. I'll, I'll say a couple of things about this as we close. What do we learn from that? One, Christ is sovereign over these things. Not just vaguely as God, but when he rose from the dead, and ascended up on high and um, began to rule and reign over his kingdom, over the cosmos and heaven and hell, as he is the head of all creation now. He is the mediatorial king, and everything not only belongs to him, but he governs it minutely. And I'm not speaking about God here, and I say that reverently. I'm speaking about Christ reigning for God and with God. Christ the man, the Jewish man, the Jewish king, King of all things now, he governs every element of this creation and our lives minutely. 
minutely. He, he guides this fish. He guided the fish when the, the man, woman, or child dropped their coin or threw their coin into the lake. This silver coin. And the fish saw it and was attracted by it and tried to swallow it and it became lodged in the fish's mouth. And then Christ guided it to Peter's life at the exact, he governs this fish. He governs the sparrow that falls from the nest and so on and so on. Our faith, uh, our, our hearts this morning should begin to feel our relief as we hear that because we have unbelief and we are faced with the world and uh, we lose a sense of just how in control Jesus Christ is in love towards us. He rules over all of this and he guides the animal just as he guided the animals in the Garden of Eden as Adam reigned over them. He guided the animals to the Ark of Noah. He, he goes into Jerusalem a few months after this on the foal of a donkey and that donkey is controlled by God. The foal of a donkey, a new foal that was attached to its mother and had not been pulled away from its mother yet and it, it should be distraught and Christ sits in it and the donkey's in complete peace because he reigns over the animal kingdom as well as the human kingdom. And what a comfort this is for us. A picture of Christ reigning over this creation. And as he does in this passage, he, he shows in a flash, just in a small moment, he shows um, a world without a curse. Just like what happened with the flood, I mentioned these things. For a moment before the flood, there was a world without a curse. All the animals behaved as they did before the curse. And they obeyed God, and they served man. And they just went into that boat. And we see so many examples of it, that would be an interesting Bible study for you. But here's an example of it. This fish obeys its master. And it serves its master. It serves man. How shouldn't really do this? This is so improbable. It's ridiculous. But here it is. To, to catch a fish with the money you need in it. This shows us a little drop of what the new heavens and new earth will be like. When we reign with Christ, when the entire creation will be subject to us. And we will be in need of nothing. And all of these things will hope. So it shows him reigning. And it shows what a world may be like without a curse. But it lastly shows his provision for you and I and this church. They could have found the money a different way, I suppose. But this is Christ just leaving us in no doubt. This is a miraculous provision of money. The exact amount that's needed. And the church, church history is replete with examples of God providing for his church. And protecting his church from impossible odds. We're in the covenant of the church. We, we inherited this church from the covenanters. This church shouldn't exist. Those covenanters should have been obliterated, but God preserved them wonderfully. And the Lord Jesus Christ does that for you and I in him and for his physical church. He's not far away leaving us to figure it all out. He, he watches the fish. He watches the coin. Jesus is not some 
dictator who only cares about the important people and the big people. He cares about the minutest detail. And we're told in this passage and in the New Testament that he is head of all things to the church. That we are his bride and he loves and cares for the church. He is the king and the king provides for his people. He provides in our lives and he provides practically. You're in all kinds of situations. There are people moving right now. There are people taking new jobs right now. There are people looking at their financial situations right now. There are people with health problems uh, that are connected to our congregation and uh, they don't have health insurance. And they're, they're worried about going to the doctor because of what it will cost. All of these things are terrible. There are many times in my life I've been crippled by just the thought of money. Jesus shows us here, I will provide for you. Have faith. You might not see a miracle, but you might see something close to it. I own all of this, and I'm guiding it for the good. And I will not let my church be destroyed. I will not let my sons and daughters be destroyed. He will provide for us as we work and we are wise in all of these things. He will be over that situation to provide for us as families and as people and for this congregation. He will provide. If it's his will and in his love and grace, then he does the unusual. He provides unusually for Peter here. And Jesus pays not only for himself, but for his brother Peter. And Jesus will do that for us too. What a wonderful uh, passage this is. Tithe, give. Remember that Christ owns it all. Remember that we are heirs with Christ in him of this kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth and we should be focused on that. And as we serve him in this world, in this congregation, in our own individual families and lives, remember none of this is ours and Christ is in charge of the fish, Christ is in charge of the coin, Christ is in charge of every atom and he guides it all. Let's pray for that. Let's have faith in that and call upon him to provide. For my God shall supply all of your needs in Christ Jesus according to the riches of his glory, the apostle says. Let's have faith in these things. Let's stand and pray in his name. Let's stand. Our gracious God, we ask that you would imprint your gracious faith upon our souls. And we marvel at who Christ is as the eternal Son, and that he owns all things even now, not for this world, to build up treasures in this world, or temporary kingdoms in this world, but it all has a view to the everlasting kingdom. And the church exists to save and sanctify souls. Not to be built for its own sake, but to snatch people uh, from the burning and to save them and bring them and usher them to that kingdom. Let us all focus on that kingdom and spend much time setting our soul there and investing there, for that is where your people 
will spend eternity. Show us the glory of that kingdom and show us the one who will reign over it, that he reigns even now and can guide all things in our experience and situations even now for our good. Do us good, O Lord, and as our Saviour, have mercy on us and be very near to us all in Christ's great name we pray. Amen.